Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, Michael Rowland will be chatting with journalist Bronwyn Adcock about her book, Karawan. The book traces the Karawan fire, which engulfed the south coast of New South Wales in 2019 and 2020. Adcock lived through it and recalls the effect on her own life and local community and the stories of many of those around her. In a prodigious effort, she has talked to over 50 families who lost homes, property, and even family in the fire, revealing its awful consequences. As we emerge from COVID, let's not forget about those who were so dramatically affected only a summer ago. They deserve our compassion and our attention. Before we start, a quick reminder... As this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there's been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And now, here's the host of the event, Readings Bookseller, Mari Madison. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Readings. We're really excited tonight to have Bronwyn Adcock talking about her new book, Karawan, in conversation with Michael Rowland, also a writer on bushfires and also, as you all know, very well-known journalist, as is Bronwyn. They probably don't need a lot more introduction from me. I'm Mari from Readings. That's probably someone you didn't know, whereas I'm sure that you do know Michael and you do know Bronwyn. Michael will chat to Bronwyn for around half an hour. We will find out many things and then whatever questions come up, you can send them through at any point during the conversation and I will pass them on towards the end. I would like to uh, thank Black Ink and I would like to welcome tonight Bronwyn Adcock talking about her new book, Karawan, in conversation with Michael Rowland, journalist, author, broadcaster. I am going to pass right on to him in a second. I'm not sure where everyone else is based, but I want to first acknowledge that I am joining you tonight from the lands and peoples of the Kulin Nations, and I would like to acknowledge their elders, past, present and emerging, and the elders of all the people of the nations across Australia their elders, past, present, emerging, and everyone tonight. This is Aboriginal land. It's never been ceded. It will always be Aboriginal land. I will pass you over to Michael. Welcome. Thank you very much, Marie. And uh, I've been in lockdown for so long, even I miss the mid-priced, all their very nice readings wines in your in-store events. So there you go. Hopefully they can... Resume before too long. Uh, hello, everybody. Good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, I'm looking forward to a nice, easy end to the day uh, with what's going to be a fantastic conversation with Bronwyn Adcock, uh, who has written a fantastic book. I highly recommend it, Karawan. It's on um, Bronwyn's and her family's personal experience in Black Summer, but also, as we'll get through the conversation, touches on the much broader themes of why Black Summer happened, the challenge of climate change, what more needs to be done. Bronwyn is a former colleague of mine at ABC News and Current Affairs. She was a, uh, for many years, a respected, uh, experienced reporter with Radio Current Affairs at the ABC. She has also travelled the world as a video journalist for the SBS Dateline program and has written as well for many outlets, including the Griffith Review and the Monthly. And it's my great pleasure tonight to welcome Bronwyn Adcock. Bronwyn, g'day. Hi, Michael. Hi, everyone. You grew up on the south coast of New South Wales, an absolutely beautiful part of Australia, and you and your family moved back to uh, the Pizzaland just inside from Bawley Point on the south coast 
about 10 or so years ago. Tell us, what, what drew you back uh, to the South Coast? Uh, look, it, it was a couple of things. I was ready ready for a change, I guess. I'd been living living in Sydney for a while and it seemed like a bit of adventure. I, I mean, I was fairly drawn to the land, to be honest. I, I liked the idea of, of exploring the land and exploring the landscape and, yeah, just trying something different, I think. Tell us about your property. It, it sounds absolutely divine. Yeah, so it's about 10 kilometres kind of northwest of the coast. Uh, it's surrounded by forest on all sides. Uh, we're kind of on the edge of a mountain. It's not too remote, but we are off-grid, so we are completely reliant on solar power and, and tank water and we, you know, look after our own waste, that kind of thing. So we do have... Um, it's very cleared around the house, so we're very, uh, even prior to all of this, of course, very bushfire aware, and we're very bushfire aware when we built. Uh, so we have got, uh, you know, at the time we had uh, fire hoses on the house. We, we built with steel, thinking about bushfire, and, and kept it a big clearing. But essentially it is surrounded by forest, and to get, to, to get out of the property, you've got about a two-kilometre drive through forest. Take us back to November 2019. You're enjoying, you and your family, Chris, your two kids are enjoying this rustic beauty on your property. By that stage, of course, uh, Black Summer, it really wasn't Black Summer, it was Black Winter uh, as well, uh, kicking off in August, September, various other parts of the of southeastern Australia. But by November 2019, you're at home there and word came through of a fire starting in the Corowan Forest, uh, Corowan Forest, about 30, roughly 30, maybe 40 k's away from your place. Take us through your initial thoughts, bearing in mind that we've seen, by that stage, we've seen so many uh, devastating fires already in parts of Australia. Well, the the curious thing was, Michael, that I actually ended up, I, I saw it hours after it started just by chance. So at the time I was really absorbed in the bushfire season. So the season had started back in September uh, and I was writing a feature article about the bushfire season. So we already knew by November that it was something really extraordinary was happening, that that fires were spreading in a way that no one had ever seen before. Uh, so I was writing a story about that. I was focusing very much on the North Coast, which had borne the brunt of it. Um, and by chance, I was actually driving back from Canberra to the coast one afternoon in late November uh, when I saw coming from the forest this enormous plume of smoke, it was a terrifying sight. It was it was like you would imagine a, a mushroom cloud from a nuclear explosion. And I saw it and, and I was very unsettled because I was mainly unsettled because the little village I was in, people were so scared. I still didn't think it would really impact me. So I kind of drove home and thought, well, that's, you know, not great. We've got a fire in our vicinity. When I arrived home that afternoon, I could still see the smoke behind our property. I was getting fairly unsettled. Uh, but I was still thinking, well, you know, it's probably not going to happen to us. And sadly, it did. It got to the point uh, not too far beyond that because this fire, was, as with the case of so many fires of Black Summer, moved with such devastating, such horrifying speed, got to the point where you and your husband, Chris, uh, decided it was time to move. And it was quite uh, a scramble, an organised scramble, but a scramble, wasn't it, uh, for you and your family to uh, uproot yourself from the house, pack as many boxes as you could and, and get out? 
Yeah, well, we were, in many ways, we were luckier than lots of people. Lots of people throughout Black Summer and particularly on the south coast in, in the Carrowan Fire literally woke up to fire on their doorsteps. We had more warning than that. So we initially had the RFS text message come through saying seek shelter and by then we were getting our kids out. Uh, and then I'd come back to the house again for about 24 hours uh, until I kind of realised I wasn't up for defending our property. And so I'd left but was still monitoring the situation. And then when it came, when uh, my husband Chris was still at home, it came very quickly and very fast. And, you know, of all the scenarios we'd imagined about what the fire could possibly do, it was the worst-case scenario. We had a fire coming from our west but it was a spotting fire, which is, again, um, was a feature of this bushfire season is that fires were starting new fires many kilometres ahead of the fire front. So we had a fire coming from our west, but in the meantime it was starting all these other new fires to our east. So essentially they all came together and essentially surrounded our property and within a matter of minutes surrounded our house and was literally kind of licking at the footings of the house. And in your book, you, you chronicle the stories of so many people uh, in that same situation and also, sadly, so many people who did not have the luxury of that time to get out. Uh, you and the kids left. Uh, Chris, who was also a volunteer firefighter with the RFS, he, he stayed, right, to help uh, try to defend the property but also volunteer and fight other fires around the vicinity. He, he stayed on our property and then things very quickly got quite serious, I guess, and that... I was in a, in a nearby town kind of having phone conversations with him uh, when he said to me that he needed help. I could tell that he was getting into trouble. By this stage, I knew, I knew that the fire was all around the house. So I ended up calling our, his deputy captain and our local brigade and they did an extraordinarily brave thing and, and drove in through this kind of dirt road in our forest uh, to pull him out. And then once they pulled him out, they went and, and then spent the next kind of several months fighting fires elsewhere, as, as did Chris. But it was very, I mean, we, we were told that night, you know, don't expect your house to be there the next day. Like it was a very serious fire. Chris uh, got out with the help of, of the RFS. Uh, you went to your parents' place initially nearby and eventually uh, uh, you rented a place at, at Borley Point on the coast. Uh, when you did go back, what did you find after the fire had been through the property? Ah, it, it was utter devastation. I mean, I was extremely amazed and grateful that we still had a house. You know, thousands of people lost their homes this black summer. That period of time where I was believing that we had lost our home, it's, it's a pretty enormous thing to grapple with, the idea of losing everything. So to go back to our property and see the house was still there was amazing. But basically everything else had been obliterated, so it wasn't livable. The... Um, you know, we had lost all our, our power, our water tanks, even our waste systems. The fire had kind of gone underground and, and chased the, the plastic piping underground. Um, there, there wasn't a blade of green left anywhere on the property. Uh, so it ended up being, you know, a good eight months before we could move back in. And then there were lots of falling trees and it was still it was still an active fire zone. I mean, the Curran fire, like all these fires that, that they they had their runs and, and their hits, which would be terrifying, and you would take a breath and think, oh, well, enough, but then it would keep going. So that you know, these fires, they didn't go out for months on end. 
uh, you're exhausted. The R the hardworking RFS crews were absolutely exhausted. It was such a tense time. So you ended up uh, eventually, because your house was uninhabitable, uh, renting a place, as I said, out on the coast at Bawley Point. Take us through, uh, and you describe it so well in the book, this, this air of tension, this, this air of trepidation. How, how difficult was it to try to, you know, strike that balance between not overly panicking and terrifying and scaring your kids and, and others and also being conscious of just where this fire was and how quickly it could move? You know, you were constantly living this two-track life, I guess. So on, on one hand, you're thinking about things like, gee, I haven't bought any Christmas presents or we need to do some grocery shopping or, you know, whatever the kind of the, the life thing is. But then on the other hand, you, you're constantly aware that this fire is still burning and you, you're watching the weather and you're listening for alerts. And, you know, there, there would be days on end where there would be no sign of the fire. It was burning its way up through, it's what I call the green spine. It's kind of the hinterland that runs up the coast. So there would be days on end where there'd be a bit of smoke and, and then you'd think, oh, perhaps, you know, it's, you'd imagine perhaps it's over. And then there would be a strong westerly, for example, and you would be suddenly getting alerts on your phone or, you know, I write about in the book kind of about I think five days before Christmas, starting my Christmas shopping and leaving my daughter at my parents' house. And I was, you know, barely even walked into the first arcade in, in the town of Ulladulla when I get a call from my mother saying, you better come. And basically the fire is now kind of making moves towards their house. Uh, and, and it was like that the whole summer. It got to, I mean, it was hard to know where to be, really. You got through a, a very uh, disjointed Christmas uh, with a few other um, departees from further inland at Bawley Point. Let's go to New Year's Eve. And uh, in the words of one RFS commander you quote in the book, uh, that was a really shaping up to be a really dicey day. In the words of the RFS commander, an Armageddon type day. Take us through what was going through your mind as the last day of 2019 dawned. I was thinking good riddance to 2019, to be honest. <laughs> Particularly December had been a terrible month. But look, there was a, a fair amount of fear building because we knew that uh, it was going to be a very dangerous day. By the end of the year, we were essentially surrounded by fire. And we were told that New Year's Eve would be uh, a day of high fire danger. But what happened ultimately, and this happened to people, you know, from the Victorian border all the way up to Nowra on the south coast, it ended up being uh, way worse than anyone could have imagined. Uh, and in many ways, you know, more extreme fire behaviour than has ever been witnessed. The fires started running around midnight, uh, which is unheard of. Tell us about Conjola Park. Uh, tell us about what sort of community it is and how quickly it was pretty much destroyed by the fire. Conjola Park is a uh, gorgeous little hamlet, so it's on the edge of a lake. Further down the lake is Lake Conjola, which is another little village which is very popular with tourists and at the time of the fire had thousands of people in it. And I think there was about 230 homes there. And the people there had been aware all December that the fire was moving up the coast and past them and many had already evacuated. But by the time it got to the end of the year, uh, the fire had moved north of them uh, and, in fact, the, there was a fire spread prediction map the day before that the RFS put out showing which communities were going to be in danger and Conjola Park wasn't in danger. Uh, so people were 
relaxed. It was, you know, it was the last day of year, t- a tough month. People were kind of kicking back. And essentially the fire run that came into Conjola Park came so quickly that many didn't know until they actually saw fire. Uh, but the first warning they got from the RFS was shelter in place. It's too late to leave. So people were in their homes with their kids. Uh, they weren't packed. And they've either stepped outside to fire or they've looked at their phone and be told it's too late to leave. I recall being there on the on the ground the day after and just being um, amazed. You get the same sensation when you go to any uh, place that's been hit by a bushfire, amazed at this, this grim lottery that takes place. Uh, you'll see a couple of house, houses pretty much raised to the ground. Next house is okay. House after that is is destroyed, then the whole whole row of houses okay, and that's because embers just go in wildly different directions. Um, one of those houses that was destroyed uh, was owned by Justine Donahue. Tell us tell us her story. I, I found her experience with with young kids and so really terrifying to read. Bronwyn, uh, her, her story is amazing, and I'm quite in awe of her to be honest because. She was placed in a situation where she had to make a series of essentially life or death decisions uh, and she made every decision correctly. So she was uh, at home. Her husband was away working in Sydney. Uh, So Justine is a local beautician. She runs her own business. Uh, She was at home with her two young boys. She tried to leave uh, as soon as she saw smoke, got in the car with the kids, the dog, but it was already too late to leave, you know, tracked back to her house essentially found herself trapped on her street with all her uh, neighbours, with the fire kind of closing in from several directions, basically, and she couldn't get to the lake. The the lake is nearby. There was fire on the foreshore. She couldn't get to the lake. Uh, There was fire coming behind her. She described how she was considering going back into her house to shelter in a laundry, and as she was walking towards the house, she looked and an ember landed on the road and actually melted the bitumen. And then everyone on the street started screaming, get out, get out. And so she got in the car with her boys and literally minutes after she drove away, her house imploded. The last neighbour to leave the street witnessed it and he said it just disappeared. You know, this was the house that probably two minutes later she'd been weighing up, do we shelter in the house? Uh, She then joined a convoy racing down towards the beach, but before they could get to the beach, fire came uh, in front of them and so that that way was blocked. So she turned around and she's driven back out to try and get out of the highway. She gets to the highway, the highway is blocked. Uh, So the whole time, I should say, her young kids are in the back seat, you know, in tears. They they, they were asking her, Mum, are we going to die? Her husband, she had on FaceTime the whole time. He was in Sydney, so he's, you know, you can imagine what it was like for him. He was watching this. She gets to the highway, there's fire closing in, there's fire behind her, both sides of the highway, and then there's one RFS volunteer and he says, look, if anyone wants, I'm going to lead a convoy north up the highway. It's through fire, but I think it's our best chance. Uh, And, again, she has to make another decision, you know, and do I stay and risk the fire here or do I risk driving north? And she thinks, no, we'll go. And then she describes to me this incredible experience of driving in this convoy with with black, with smoke, with fire on both sides of the road. She, she nearly crashed into the car in front of her several times. And then after, you know, a number of kilometres, she bursts through the other side and she's alone now. So she's on the highway. 
there's no fire. It's just everything is white and still. So she's burst through to an already burnt area. The other cars have left. And she tells me she she stopped the car and she thought, oh, I've died. This, this is, it was such a surreal experience. Um, but she she made it. She she lost everything, obviously, but she saved the life of uh, herself and her two young boys. Just amazing. I want to ask you about Malua Bay, uh, another beautiful part of the south coast, just south of Batemans Bay. Like Conjola Park, that community found itself facing uh, uh, grave mortal danger very quickly as well. Take us through what happened to those residents and uh, how they tried desperately to flee the fires. Yeah, so Malua Bay, which is a it's a village on the coast. Again, they they were caught by this early morning fire run. So the the southern end of the Carwin fire that came racing for them started at midnight. So basically by six a.m. Anyone in that village had no choice but basically to get to the beach. So on numerous beaches there were people, but particularly on Malua Bay there was about 1,500 people. Uh, it's, a, it's a little beach and when, when you stand on the beach, you kind of you look back at the village. It kind of goes up around a hill and curves around the headland. So everyone got themselves to the beach. Lots of people were, were having really terrible breathing problems, very, very thick smoke. And then people turned around basically to wait and watch as the fire came. One a woman I interviewed described how uh, initially it was just smoke, they couldn't see flame, and it was all very quiet, and then she heard the sound of hundreds of household smoke alarms going off, and then bang, bang, houses just started exploding into flames. So, again, this was ember attack and houses igniting each other. And uh, so pe- people were watching their homes burn down. They were watching their neighbours' homes burn down. I, I wrote about a, um, uh, this incredible lady who uh, looked after a whole lot of, she's actually the president of the Little Bay Ladies Bowling Club. She looked after a lot of the elderly um, bowlers, her bowlers who came down to the beach. Uh, and they watched as the Malua Bay Bowling Club just completely went up in flames. One of the reasons why uh, the fires were so bad is because they spread so quickly. There weren't simply there were not enough resources on the ground. Uh, the fire crews there were hard working; they were doing all they could. The commanders were putting in twenty-four hour days. But Bronwyn, the lack of resources proved to be a pretty serious issue pretty quickly, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely, and and it got worse as the fire season went on. So. Uh, a big gap in resources was aerial resources. So the the water bomb- bombing aircraft that that can come in quickly. Um, so there were not enough of those. There were not enough planes that could do line scan. So a line scan is a is a plane that flies over the fire and maps where it is and what it's doing. And because there were not enough planes and so many fires, a lot of the time on fires the the incident controllers on the ground who were sending out volunteers didn't even really know the footprint of the fire. They didn't know where it was or what it was doing. Uh, and then it just cascaded over time. So, you know, particularly these fires that were starting, like the Carwin fire did in forests, they were just getting away and they were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the bigger they got, the harder they got to control and there were no extra resources coming. And it wasn't as if governments... Uh- State and federal weren't warned. Uh, you spoke to Greg Mullins, who many people here would know. He was a fairly prominent face 
during the fire, still is. He's a, he's a former commissioner of New South Wales Fire and Rescue, Bronwyn. He set up this group with other former fire leaders called Emergency Leaders for Climate Action. You spoke to him quite a bit over, over 2019 and afterwards, uh, and he uh, made a point of uh, going well before Black Summer erupted to the federal government saying, hey, I, I speak as a former fire chief here, we are dangerously exposed through the lack of resources, we are dangerously exposed with the lack of aerial water bombers. What happened when he raised those concerns? Well, he was ignored. He he couldn't even get a meeting with anyone in government. And he wasn't the only one putting out the warning. He, he was probably the most vocal in the media. And look, and he had, you know, all the emergency, former emergency services leaders with him. I think together they had something like 600 years of experience. All of them were saying really similar things. But, but there was also warnings coming from, uh, you know, the, the Bureau of Meteorology, uh, other scientists. I mean, the, the drought that was coming up to Black Summer, which was going for several years, it was very clearly going to be an incredibly dangerous bushfire season. Let's talk about climate change. Uh, a lot of our leaders did not want to talk about climate change uh, around the time. I recall being on the ground and um, interviewing, uh, I recall one interview with uh, Gladys Berejiklian. This is in November on the north coast of New South Wales in Taree. There were quite a few fires there trying to get her to acknowledge that climate change is making these extreme weather events much more likely and she could not even bring herself to, to use the word climate change. She eventually came around, as, as, as did most of the leaders, it's going to be uh, sadly the case that unless action is done or more action is done, we're going to be suffering, uh, living through many similar Black Summer events in, in years to come. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the tragedy, I guess, for Australia is that we have had this uh, lost decade of the, the climate wars where what really should have been a topic where we talked about it in terms of science, what do we do, how do we adapt, how can we better prepare ourselves, we need to get different resources for fighting fires. It became this, and it still is to a degree, this political issue when really it shouldn't be a question of politics. It should be a question of let's get practical, let's figure out how we're going to uh, actually tackle this. I think that, you know, there, there, there's two trains here. Of course there there is the issue of uh, reducing emissions, which is a, a global effort that Australia, you know, needs to be a part of. But there's also facing the reality in Australia and that we're a really climate-exposed country. You know, the, I talk about in the book that there's recent research saying that something like 380,000 homes in Australia are exposed to some kind of uh, extreme weather event. So whether it's coastal inundation or, or bushfire or flooding. So we're very exposed. So we really need to start having conversations about how do we adapt, how, how do we live with this. I mean, one of the things Black Summer showed was how our infrastructure often just crumbled. So we had, you know, around New Year's Eve, for example, there, there was not only no water in some villages, like water systems in Conjola didn't stand up, uh, telecommunications didn't stand up, power didn't stand up. So you're talking about, you know, there was a stretch of coastline, I think 170 kilometres long that evening, that had absolutely no telecommunications. So we're talking hospitals, ambulance stations. It, it was a complete, in the middle of a fire crisis, our systems that connect us and keep us safe weren't up to it. And, uh, yes, and you're right as well about the power being down and, of course, that, that took out disabled tanks at petrol stations, it disabled FPOS, 
and it just added to the chaos of people trying to flee. You talk about all those people living in areas prone to being hit by natural disasters. People uh, moved to, in this case, the bush for the reasons you did. It is a beautiful part of the world. You want to be close to nature. We are talking about some pretty difficult conversations that need to be had, don't we, uh, as, as Australia as you argue quite forcefully, needs to get more real about living in such a climate. It's true, but I I think that the scale of what's happening as well has actually expanded it beyond people just living in the bush. So I think that what Black Summer showed, and and there's actually fires before that have showed that as well, is that villages and towns are exposed. I mean, 10 years ago, I think it was Canberra, fire came into the suburbs of Canberra um, Mm -hmm. over Black Summer. You know, fire came into the heart of the, the, the business district of villages, places like Cabago and, and Mogo. So it's the weather is becoming so extreme that it's not just an issue now for people living in kind of remote areas. Um, and a lot of our urban development, you know, all up and down the coast, where we've pushed our urban development back into these areas. Um, you know, if you want to expand it out to looking at uh, coastal issues, we have entire villages and towns built on floodplains and uh, on the edges of estuaries. So, yeah, it, it's, a, it's, an, it's a huge issue. And even, I mean, another interesting thing I think is it's not even about um, necessarily your physical exposure to if you're going to actually get hit by the fire. You know, o- over Black Summer, more people died from uh, respiratory illness than from the immediately immediate cause of the fire itself. Um, you know, there was a, a spike in hospital presentations for people with respiratory uh, problems. I mean, I'm sure people in, I'm not sure about Melbourne, but I know people in Canberra and Sydney had really long periods of time where the air quality uh, was terrible and, and dangerous, to be frank. It's going to go on forever, certainly in Sydney and Canberra. Um, we've got one question here, and please, if you've got questions as well, please chip in. This is from Christy uh, Bromman. Thank you so much for this in your book, uh, such vivid images of the experience of the community. Chrissy asks, can you tell us about the recovery process? Good question. How has the community responded and what is needed to support communities for managing future climate exposures as you've spoken about? Uh, thank you, Christy. Look, it's it's still an ongoing uh, process. I think that there is no um, end to recovery. I think a lot of the bushfire communities, uh, it was made more difficult by the arrival of the pandemic <laughs> so that there was, there was barely a month between when the fires ended when lockdown started. So on a really practical level is that after the fires, a lot of communities started doing things like there were disaster recovery centres, there were community centres, there were fundraising concerts organised, basically things aimed at well mental recovery as much as physical recovery, and all those things stopped. So people had to retreat to their own house, as we all are now. So there was that loss of connection. A lot of people have found, I mean, it's not at all unusual to hear stories about people who are still just beginning to rebuild. It's actually rarer to hear of people who have rebuilt uh, a lot of people struggle with things like insurance or, you know, new, new building codes. I mean, I think to rebuild a property or to build a house is something that people normally decide to do and it's an exciting adventure and they're looking forward to it. But to do it when you have had your hand forced and you're traumatised and it's in the middle of a pandemic, it's it's pretty tricky. So, look, it's still an ongoing an ongoing process. 
And a lot of the businesses along the coast uh, have been badly affected because, I mean, as you know, Bronwyn, uh, a lot of the, the coastal towns take in a lot of their annual revenue over the Christmas holidays, the January holidays when people come down and, and stay for a week or two. Uh, that was wiped out, of course, as uh, uh, people fled and uh, the fires had to be fought. And as you said, the pandemic rolled around and all of a sudden, uh, this is going back to 2020, Easter holidays were taken out depending on how severe the outbreaks were. School holiday travel has been crimped. So a lot of these businesses, aren't they, who rely on the tourism dollar 18 months on. And let's not forget we had the drought before then as well, so it's been a bit of a triple whammy. A lot of these businesses are still suffering, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. There's businesses who have been doing it really, really tough. And really no end in sight. I mean, the recovery process continues and what they don't need is another serious fire season. You know, for example, I noticed um, over winter when there's a lot of uh, hazard reduction burning going on, which is essentially it's a good thing, you know. It's it's burning that's done to kind of, you know, get rid of some fuel in, in a good time. But, you know, I've noticed over the last two years, whenever you start to see those smoke plumes over winter of hazard reduction, straight away the community Facebook pages light up with people panicking. Who's seen the smoke? What's going on? Is there fire? Like... People are very, very stressed still. So I think, um, you know, the prospect of a of more dangerous fire weather coming in summer, I think, would be yeah, really traumatizing thing for a lot of people. Uh, and the hazard reduction is great, but it's the, is the fact that uh, because the fire seasons are getting longer and longer, the, the the window for effective hazard reduction is pretty much declining year on year. Yeah, so the Australian fire seasons are uh, many months longer than they used to be. So you, you're correct, the, the window of safe burning uh, has really shrunk. Um, but the other thing that the Royal Commission and the New South Wales Bushfire Inquiry found was that some of the fires over Black Summer were so extreme that hazard reduction that had been done made no difference at all, that these fires just barreled right through them. I've got a question from um, Marie. Are you finding, Bronwyn, there's been movement to the area since the pandemic began from, from urban areas? And, and could this be helpful to your local community, other communities on the South Coast rebuilding? There has been massive movement, but no, it's actually really unhelpful, to be honest. I mean, there's a, a huge uh, problem with homelessness and housing in, in these areas. And a lot of bushfire survivors, but also the wider community, uh, have really struggled with finding places to live and it, it's been an ongoing problem and uh, as more people have moved out of the cities during the pandemic, uh, yeah, it's only become, yeah, more, more acute. Again, it, it's a great book, uh, very much, it's compelling but very hard to read, um, but I still highly recommend it because you give such an insight into what the situation was on the ground there. You, you've taken us through November, Christmas, New Year's, was there a moment that you thought, and there were so many horrible days that you write about, was there a moment, Brom, when you thought, hang on, um, this is pretty serious and I'm really worrying for my my life, my husband's life, my kids' lives, I, I may not see tomorrow. Was there, a, I guess, a, a come-to-Jesus moment that you thought the thing could go really off the rails for you? Uh, not for me personally, but I, I certainly had moments where I thought, my husband's life was in danger on more than a couple of occasions uh, where various friends and family members were 
you knew fire was hitting certain places, but whenever whenever the fire was bad enough, uh, phones went out. So there were quite a number of occasions where there would be very large gaps of time where you'll be waiting to hear uh, how people were. You would hear kind of on the grapevine or you hear bits and pieces of where the fire has gone through and you would know who's there and then it would be a waiting game to see, you know, are they, is their house okay, are they okay? Congratulations on the book. Uh, as I said, I think it is, it is required reading for, for anybody who lives in Australia because we're all affected by Black Summer in one way or another, whether you lived through it, whether you watched it from afar, whether you suffered from the economic fallout from it. Uh, let's hope, as you say, there's not another one uh, this year or next year or the year after anytime soon. But climate change is baked in already. I think Greg Mullins, didn't he, say that regardless if there was a sudden conversion on the road to Damascus on uh, federally on climate change and action on it, even if that were to happen, warming is already baked in for the next, what, 10, 20 years? Yeah, at least 20 years. I mean, you know, obviously we can mitigate things and we should mitigate things, but there is no avoiding a trajectory now of uh, more natural disasters coming closer together and becoming more intense, and that's, you know, bushfire, flood, cyclone. There's no getting around that. Hopefully not earthquakes. I think we've uh, seen enough earthquakes this morning in, in Melbourne and South East Australia. Uh, that's where I leave it again. Bronwyn, thank you so much. It was a, a great conversation. You made it very easy for me and I think uh, everybody out there would agree. You, you took us back there uh, so uh, dramatically to uh, that, that horrible summer. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, everyone, for coming. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website. We'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production for this podcast was by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.